Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 85. This episode is with the director of the Lewin Sports Injury Clinic and former head of medical at Arsenal Football Club, Colin Lewin. Colin came on to talk about his transition from full-time football into private work at the clinic. He spoke about working with Arsene Wenger. We also talked about how screening and monitoring had progressed throughout his career in football and also his views on running an effective department. So it was great to chat with Colin. Um, This episode will also be available to watch on YouTube. So the episodes normally go out on Spotify and iTunes, but we are also uploading podcasts now to YouTube as well so you can watch the podcast. So really appreciate Colin for coming on the podcast. It was great to chat with him. I hope you take plenty from the episode. Please, as always, please share the show share it out to as many people as possible. I'm sure many physios out there will be interested in in this episode too. Um, So please do us a big favour in sharing it and just make sure also that you subscribe. If you subscribe to the show, um, as soon as we release the podcast and we're putting two out a week at the moment, they will directly go onto your phone or whatever device you're listening on. So please share and subscribe to the show. And here is the episode with Colin. Welcome to episode 85 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Colin Lewin, the director of the Lewin Sports Injury Clinic. Colin, how's things with you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, thanks. Difficult times. Uh, Same for everyone. But yeah, sitting and waiting for that green light before we can all start running again and uh, getting business going. But no, we're okay. We're safe. Yeah, it's a very, very weird time, isn't it? But um, I'm sure a lot of people would have seen your name around the football world, um, and a lot of people will know that what you've been up to in this, and the roles you've had in football. But do you want to just take us through your background and then up to what you're currently doing? So um, I qualified as a physio in in 1995, a long time ago now. Uh, went uh, straight to Arsenal, and I was working with the youth teams and reserve teams as they were then. There was no academy system really. And did that for a few years, working under Gary Lewin, who was the first team physio, my cousin. Um, in 1998, I ended up working with the first team under Gary. It became a two-man job and um, did that for 10 years, travelling to games and working with the injuries and number two physio, really. Uh, in 2008, Gary left and went full-time with England um, at the FA. And I got the head role and became the head of medical services or lead physio or whatever they call it these days uh, from 2008 through to 2018. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. And since then, there's been other bits and pieces going on. Um, a brief consultancy role with Bristol City helping to set up some of their loan spills, medical cover. They had a lot of players on loan. So working with Andy Rolls down at Bristol City on that. And the majority of the last 18 months, two years really, has been thrown into setting up the clinic here, um, the Lewin Sports Injury Clinic with Gary Lewin. And we both work here and it's been a a long year. We opened in October and five months into it, COVID-19 struck and here we are. Not ideal in your first six months of a new business, but yeah, there we are. That's where that brings us up to the current day. And the 
In terms of that that transition, we spoke a lot recently to a lot of practitioners, um, albeit sports scientists, strength conditioning coaches that have made that same sort of transition going from full-time football to private work. So I know obviously at the moment we're tackling a few different challenges with with coronavirus and a a lot of restrictions, but how have you found that transition so far? Um, Tricky. I did 23 years at Arsenal, so it's all I've known really. There's been a a very rigid structure to my working life and to come away from that, I found it quite difficult um, having no football on a Wednesday night or a Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. It, it was difficult. I really miss being in a team, being in a medical and you know, sports science team, learning from people, bouncing things off people nutritionists, sports scientists, masseurs, physios, doctors, you know, you, you learn an awful lot from being in that team. You know, I really miss that and I don't think I'll ever stop missing that. Um, you get Sundays off now. I think it's quite nice having Sundays off uh, with the family, which is always a bonus. You didn't get that in football, neither did anyone really. I'm not trying to make out I'm special there. Uh, the other thing as well I think I miss, which surprised me a little bit, is the ups and downs. The the huge ups and huge downs you could get being in football in the same week. Whereas, you know, you had that huge buzz of winning an important game on the Saturday. You might lose one on the Wednesday night and you're, you're up and down like a roller coaster. That that adrenaline throughout the week is not something that's around now. So that, that's been difficult. I found that it's a very straight line week now, which is good in some ways, but I think I do miss the the ups and downs of professional sport which I'm sure everyone would relate to that in some way I'm sure and in terms of the way you work now so I'm guessing it's more on on uh, a one-on-one basis with with athletes um so what how's that transition sorry transition been and what are some things that you could do now that you possibly didn't have that insight to before because this is something that we spoke to a lot of coaches about that the working one-on-one and working within a team environment can be very very different yeah, um, we're not just working with athletes here. We're working with, you know, all walks of life, really, from from elite athletes at one end down to 65-year-old woman with a knee replacement at the other end. You know, working with a, a real spectrum of people. Um, so, no, it's not been too tricky, but the one-on-one thing has been good in some ways because you can focus on one person for the half an hour or the hour they're with you. On the other side of it, you're used to working with athletes for four, five, six hours a day. So you get more time with them. So you tend to find your results are, are going to be a bit better. So, yeah, it's different. It's different. But you, know, you, you do ask yourself, how much difference can I make in this 30-minute session with some of the patients you're seeing? But you do it comes down to education and uh, helping them to help themselves. But everyone's very grateful in the outside world a bit more grateful than uh, the elite athlete maybe I suppose but it's been okay it's just having to adapt to using your time a lot lot better I think uh, with the facilities we had at Arsenal and the people I work with at Arsenal you could work with people from 9 till 12 get a bit of lunch and work with them from 1 till 3 you're going to get results doing it that way but yeah different 
And then what about in terms of, because there, there would have been the option, I'm guessing, to stay in football and pursue the next challenge and um, possibly go into another club. But what was the sort of mindset behind setting up and then creating a business? Um, yeah, that's a good question, really. It was, no, there weren't hundreds of offers. That'd be a lie from lots and lots of offers. I think it was more a case of, is this the time now to to have a, a different direction, to, to start thinking about the future a bit more, to have a little bit more of a security, a safety, to, which is, you know, football's volatile, elite sport is volatile. That's always going to be the case. We were lucky at Arsenal for all those years, largely because of one manager. Um, we had stability for a long, long time, and that was very rare. You know, one or two other clubs had it. So we were very fortunate. And to go to another club would have been a bit of a risk around the volatility and the insecurity. So we had the backing of three players, Petr Cech, Meza Ozo, Aaron Ramsey, backed us to run this clinic and invested. And it, it seemed like the right thing to do. Gary was very keen as well. And lots of advice from lots of good people that I trust, including Arsene Wenger and David Dean at Arsenal and, People have trusted at Arsenal over the years or who no one will really know of, but it has been a great help to us and it just felt the right thing to do. And this wasn't something that we spoke about previously, but I think it's only right that I asked. You've, you just mentioned there about the consistency at the club for so many years under under Arsene Wenger. And I always like to <laughs> I always like to learn from um from these top practitioners, whether it be managers, whether it be coaches, like whoever it is. But what was, what were some of your biggest lessons from working so closely with Arsene Wenger? Um, communication, trust, honesty, you know, all the obvious words that you expect to come out. I think working with someone for that long and, you know, you're going to build a trust, you're going to build a relationship and, I do feel for the people out there, physios, doctors, sports scientists and other people who are changing managers every 18 months because you then got to start almost from scratch. You've got to go and build a relationship. Trust doesn't come naturally. You've got to build that. So we never had those hiccups. We were lucky that we had the continuity. But he was a, a man who knew what he wanted. He was very clear with us about But I think the biggest key was communication and we were constantly speaking to him day in, day out about the uh, the key elements of what he needed to know and uh, the morning meetings and the texts and the phone calls, the same for any physio at any club. But when you're doing it to one man and you know his habits and you know what he wants to know, it, um, it makes it easier. And then what about in terms of building trust? You just said there about the importance of communication and building trust. And a lot of people, <coughs> I think this is one thing that, I personally see that a lot of people struggle with building that relationship and they might have all the knowledge in the world, but actually having that relationship and the trust is really important. So how do you go about building trust and what's your what would your advice to practitioners be? I think the obvious thing, and it's not an easy thing to say, is not to be afraid of making mistakes. I think the industry can become so self-preserving, so mustn't be seen to make a mistake. I think mistakes are good. And I think if you're honest with yourself and your your line managers and your colleagues around you, 
I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's, a, it's an enormous learning tool. We all know that. But if your manager sees that you're you're not infallible, sees that you're going to make mistakes here and there, but you're willing to be honest and admit them, I think it goes a long way. You're not going to get it right every time. And to stand there in front of a football manager and demand that you're right every time is just unrealistic. And so I think that's where it came really from occasionally admitting in front of coaches and management that you didn't get it right. And you can't do it too often because you wouldn't last long, would you? But I think you have to accept you get it wrong sometimes, same as everyone else. And I think it often goes a long way with with the good people when they can recognise that you are, you know, you have a bit of humility. And yeah, I think you've got to be honest with yourself sometimes. And I know you've touched on it a little bit there, but I was going to ask as well, in terms of a, a, um, a successful department, a uh, um, department that runs well, like what do you see as some really key um, aspects of that or possibly like habits of a department that runs well? But, and then on the flip side of that, one that doesn't run, run so well. I think uh, I was very lucky at Arsenal. I was always backed with the right funding and the right trust to go and get the people I wanted. Um, I didn't have a great deal of interference from anybody at the club when it came to my decisions around recruitment, whether that be massage therapist, physiotherapist, even the doctor. Um, We always had enormous backing in that the CEO and the senior people in HR and quite often the manager would want to be involved. But the decision always came down to us and me and so the backing was that good that I could afford to get good people. So where I'm going with this is if you're clearly defining people's roles, I think is really key. I had, I was lucky to have Ben Ashworth, Andy Rolls, Jimmy Haycock, Simon Harland, Declan Lynch over the years, same a few other physios who could have done my job easily. They were really qualified, experienced, skilled physios who worked in a team. And so that was key to the department that we had good, qualified, really good people. Um, So there was a mutual respect among us. But with that came the need for clearly defined roles. Maybe I didn't always get it right. But I think if you know what your role is, you know what's expected of you. I think that's really important in a successful team. I think work ethic goes without saying. When you're working in elite sport, the hours aren't normal, are they? So I think um, the work ethic... Is, is vital. And I think when you're working with a group of people as well, I think recognition of what they're doing, praise, uh, credit where it's due. I think you can have some very good people working with you, but as long as they're getting some impact or they, they see that they're getting some impact, some influence there, I think that's also key to a department feeling fulfilled and feeling like they're, they're part of a, a bigger system really. Um, yeah, I think good leadership's an easy thing to say, isn't it? But I'm not sure it's the easiest thing to do. But to be able to get the best out of a group of people and make them want to work as hard as they can for you in the team, I think is a, a really important thing. So that's when it works well. I think when it doesn't work too well, I think when communication is poor, a really obvious thing to say, but as medical and sports science teams are now getting bigger and bigger, communication's becoming more and more of an issue. WhatsApp groups and everything else are helping, of course. But anyone feeling they're left out of the loop 
for anyone feeling they're not being told something they, they need to be told, I think that can be corrosive in a group for sure. And alongside that, the backstabbing, which I was lucky enough, I believe, <laughs> to never have suffered at Arsenal. Um, I think as the teams get bigger and bigger, like I say, you don't want bitching, you don't want the background stuff going on. As long as everyone feels part of it, the communication is good and there's recognition, credit, praise at the right time, I think it works. Because I suppose that an increase in numbers at any point is is always got a bit more potential, hasn't it, for people to not see eye to eye and possibly pull in slightly different directions. So some coaches that are listening might be at a club where there's just them. So they might just be a a physio, one physio, and possibly one sports scientist if they're, if they're lucky. It might be someone that looks after everything. Um, so... I suppose at the bigger clubs, you, you do have that, don't you, where the teams are bigger and that can cause, potentially cause a few more issues? Yeah, it can. And I think that's when it comes down to there being a good leader. Uh, like I said before, clearly defining the roles and letting people know what you expect of them exactly, I think is important. Now, that's not to say I think you don't need more opinions. I think when there's one physio, one sports scientist and a kit man, I think, of course, that one opinion from the physio is vital, isn't it? It's the only opinion. But I think at the bigger clubs, when you've got four, sometimes five good, experienced physiotherapists, you're going to get four or five good opinions. They won't always be the same. So I think it's a case of taking them on board, thrashing them out in a closed room, and then going with one message after that. But I think, you know, no egos is a massive thing. That's probably one of the top things, really, when it comes to a team. I think you can't afford egos. Um, I think that can be very difficult when you're working with a, a bigger team because egos and team don't go together, do they? No, I think that's a great point. And, it, and that, that can be the real stumbling block, can't it? You can have the best practitioners or if we relate it to players, the best players in the world. But if you've got the... And, we, and there's a lot of famous situations, probably... Uh, your biggest rivals, Man United, probably had probably some of the most famous ones, didn't they? Where um, Sir Alex got rid of certain people because they just they didn't fit within that cohesive team, and that relates really well to a to a department as well, doesn't it? Yeah, and when you think now, massage therapists, sports scientists, S and C coaches, physios, doctors, nutritionists, psychology—it's a big performance team, if you want to call it that. And uh, everyone has their roles, but any ego that slips in there, it's going to uh, gradually eat away at the, the tightness of that team. And it's yeah, something I think is probably getting worse, but it's easy for me to say that without any examples, but it's probably getting worse is the egos. And in terms of like leading that department, so we have, we have managers, we have board of directors that are, that are making some big decisions at the club. But in terms of underneath that, we've got more and more roles being created now that sit under like a head of performance or a performance director or like there's a lot of different titles to it, isn't there? But in terms mm. of leading like the department of like whatever you want to call it, sports science and medicine or the medical department or whatever it is, what are your views on on that person and, and who it should be and, and the roles that they should take? Yeah, that's a good question. There'd be lots of different opinions on that, I think. Uh, the whole 
head of performance, director of performance, is a, is a bit of an odd thing that's come along in the last 10-ish years, I suppose. It's not something I completely agree with because ultimately I've always thought the director of performance is probably the manager <laughs> because he's going to be the one directing the performance. I suppose head of performance of staff, maybe. I think if you're in charge of the head of performance of that sports science and medicine team, then, then I get it perhaps, but I'm not sure that's exactly what the performance title means. I think it doesn't really matter who is the head of the performance or who is the head of the team. I think medical indemnity is a big issue. So being biased, I'm always going to lean towards a doctor or a physiotherapist being the head of a department. Indemnity and the decisions that are being made around uh, players' rehab, players' surgery uh, and players' health and well-being should probably be a doctor, if not a physio. But if the head of that team happens to be a, an S&C coach or a sports scientist and they're the right mentality, they're the right personality, there's no ego and there's no pressure around that medical indemnity, then I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be that person. The type of person in that role is far more important than the faculty they're from, in my opinion. And, and just into that, I know you've mentioned some character traits already and it'll probably cross over when we talked about the, the, the department working well and that, but what do you see as being some real key character traits or personality traits or attributes of that person? In the head of performance role? Um, lack of ego. I've said it before. Luckily you can't have a, an ego if you're heading a department of that many people. Uh, work ethic, understanding, honesty, the same things that I've mentioned already really. But that person needs to be able to inspire that group of people to be as good as they can be day in, day out. I think uh, it's leadership skills, really, but that's just such an easy thing to say. It's uh, so many different facets of leadership. But one thing's for sure, I think people need to be seeing that that leader is working for them as a team rather than for themselves. And I think uh, recognise what a tricky job they've got but on the other side of it, they do need to be working for that team. I think it's a great point. It echoes what um, we had John Hartley on the podcast, physiothera uh, physiotherapist at Aston Villa, and he was talking, because I like talking to people in, in different roles and just seeing their mm -hmm. opinion from slightly different sides. But when you speak to a lot of people, it all, it all comes to the same thing. It is relationships across the team, understanding each other's role, things that you've said already defining each other's role but I think the understanding is the really key bit isn't it that yeah I understand that you this is what you do and you understand what I do but we're working together to get the same thing essentially yeah and not looking for the individual credit every time there's going to be arguments there's going to be disagreements I don't think I think it's healthy that there's disagreements within a team but as long as it's done respectfully um openly I think it's healthy. You're only going to get better if you have these discussions and you're only going to get better when you acknowledge mistakes. And my God, there's been a few of them. <laughs> and that's, that's a really good point, isn't it? And I suppose that comes down to the culture that any club creates is that you should be able to sit in a room and say, I disagree with what you're saying and this is the reason why. Not because I don't like you, but it's because this is my view and this is your view and let's come to a, a rational way of going forward. And I think... This is something we've touched on in previous episodes as well, that social media become, it comes into this a little bit. 
in terms of um, a lot of people can very easily put their opinions out there and it can go out to the world and touch a lot of people straight away. But what, what are your views on that? Have you had experience with that in terms of people using social media and getting, getting views out there? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. I was quite late to it. I didn't particularly agree with it because uh, I felt it was something that didn't need to go out. I thought most of the time it needed to be in-house. Um, again, 2018 at Arsenal, the year I left, there wasn't a great deal going out. It was all very in-house stuff. I think if someone has got something else going on, a particular project or a particular interest or a special interest, then why shouldn't they? Of course they shouldn't. They shouldn't be stopped from doing that, no problem. But I think on the whole, the in-house stuff in that particular club should be kept in-house. Don't get me wrong, I think it's a great medium for education, isn't it? I think it's a great medium for research, sharing um, some of the webinars that are going on at the moment with physios from football teams being involved. Brilliant. That should be encouraged. But it needs to be carefully selected and uh, good luck to the communication teams at football clubs and rugby clubs who are desperately trying to control it. I think it's, it's not easy. But again, it comes down to recruitment. When you mentioned before about you should be able to thrash it out in a room, disagreements. If your recruitment's good, you're going to get the right personalities in with the S&C, the sports science, the massage therapy, the physios, the doctor. People need to be able to talk to these people on a level playing field. And I think if your recruitment's right and you get the right people, then that's going to be good. It's going to be healthy. Don't underestimate the power of recruitment. And it's an obvious thing to say, but it's so important. I hope you're enjoying the episode with Colin so far. Some great information in this one. Just wanted to give you a very quick update on our online community. So our community is somewhere that we host webinars. Uh, We've got a number of different webinars online now, as well as some of our network meeting presentations, which if you're not aware, we run network meeting uh, network meetings across the UK, uh, usually when, if we're not, when we're not in lockdown, um, for coaches to meet other coaches and grow your network. But at those meetings, we have presenters um, that present on a range of different topics. And 10 of those presentations are available to watch on demand on our online community as well as a number of different webinars. And we've just uploaded a brand new webinar from uh, Dr. Will Abbott at Brighton, Academy Performance Manager at Brighton and Hove Albion. And he's presented on using research to inform applied practice. And there's also another recent webinar from Hamish Munro, Strength Conditioning Coach, um, on velocity-based training in professional football, as well as many other different topics of webinars as well. So you can go and check it out. You get a free month when you first sign up. So just go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there. That'll give you a free month. And then after that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward. And you will get access to all of those that I've just mentioned, as well as our interactive forum. And then when we are back to our meetings, you will get access to all future meeting presentations as well. So go and check it out, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab, sign up there. And here is part two of the podcast with Colin. And that could be a whole different topic, I suppose, of a podcast, couldn't it, in terms of recruitment. But And we have touched on it a little bit previously. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about was across the time that you, you've been involved in football, screening and monitoring has been like a, a, a big aspect of football that's probably 
come on leaps and bounds and there's many different opinions out there and a lot of research being that has previously been done and being done currently. But what are, what are some of your views initially of how screening and monitoring should look? And then I suppose your research in terms of how we can take it forward. That's going to be a long answer. Uh, going back, way back, I'm going 2010, 11, we attempted to try and put into place some sort of screening, monitoring, not daily as such, but post-match, match day plus two type screening. And uh, it failed a couple of times, largely due to the fact that we didn't throw ourselves at it. We didn't have the staffing facilities, didn't lend themselves to it at a time exactly. And then Ben Ashworth, Andy Rolls, Simon Harlan, Declan Lynch, in, in various guises, said to me around 2013, this is something we need to be doing. Um, I was reluctant, I'll admit that. I, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. Um, thought it was too much of a difficult thing to try and undertake, having failed a couple of times in the previous few years in trying to do it. But Arsene Wenger once asked me, I've told this story before, so Arsene Wenger once asked me if a centre-back who was sat on a bed looking knackered the day after a game, is he going to be all right for the game on Saturday, which was in two days' time? Has he recovered? I mean, how could I possibly answer, has he recovered? And literally said to him, I don't know. We'll see how he is tomorrow. He wasn't injured, he was just fatigued. But to not be able to answer that question with any sort of objectivity, has he recovered, just annoyed me a little bit. And so based on that, we are... We established some sort of screening, monitoring, match day plus two um, tests to see if the players had recovered, if that's the right word. So we set about, with Alan McCall, who was our research and development consultant at the time, we set about validating and reliability testing a whole load of tests, which I can bore you with if you like. I can tell you what they were. Um, I, I think that, if, you, if you want to go into detail, I think that would be good. Yeah, okay, yeah. So we um a battery of tests which were sit and reach, knee to wall, um, which we realised weren't valid tests for recovery as such, but they were reliable, they were repeatable, they were decent knowledge to have around something that we could improve based on their tests. Uh groin squeezes that you'll know adductor squeezes, uh two hamstring tests on a box on false plates, uh counter movement jumps and a series of POMS questionnaires, which started out of five of them. We ended up skinning it down to two or three. I think I've remembered everything there. Uh, and every player was taken through that battery of tests two days after every game. Um, that was about four minutes a player, nothing too terrible. But when you consider there's sometimes 22 players coming through the door, it took a little while. It took some organisation. It took some reminding Year one, the compliance would have been around about 50-60%. So the ability to get the players up there to this testing area to go through those tests was difficult. Um, despite all the education and the trying to convince them it was the right thing to do for their benefit, it, it was tough going. Now, that improved by 20% year on year, largely because new players that were joining us saw that as the normal my lights have gone off again here we are 
Anyone that's, not, anyone that's not watching on video, Colin has to get up every few minutes and do like a Team America dance to turn the lights back on. <laughs> I'm afraid they're on timer. And so, yeah, any new player that joined us would see that as the normal. Um, and so we'd buy into it. And so gradually, I think it took three, nearly four years to get us to 100% compliance, but it was a lot of effort. Uh, but it, it worked. When I say it worked, I'm not trying to suggest for one minute we improved the injury rates because of that. I'm not trying to presume we increased the performance rates because of that. But it did enhance conversations and communication. It did show the players that we were doing everything we could to help them. Um, and the best part of that was about six months to a year in when Arsene Wenger came to us one morning and said, give me the results of the tests. So suddenly the, the coaches and the manager were getting interested in what the results were. And we would intervene occasionally and maybe adjust the player's session that day if he was testing particularly poorly in certain areas. Um, there was a whole load of algorithms in the background around standard deviations and everything else. And yeah, we had to intervene occasionally, largely because the players needed to know they were testing for a reason. So if we did these tests week in, week out, and nothing ever changed, I can understand why a player wouldn't want to do it anymore. But when players were seeing certain player sessions adjusted because of their tests, I think they started to buy into the idea of why we were doing it. And I'm really keen to stress those interventions weren't always do less. They were occasionally do more. So if we could go to a manager and say, see those seven players there, based on their test this morning, they have recovered completely. If you want to do a bit more with them, you can. That's what happened. So it wasn't a do less attitude. It was ideally a do more. I think that's... Have I explained the question? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think that's a great point, No, Just, just um, that final point that you made in terms of pushing players at, at the right time with the, in the right, at the right opportunities and... Surely for you to turn around to a coach or a manager and say that, they must be thinking, right, that, that's good. Because I think as, as a medical and sports science, um, from the point of view sometimes of technical coaches, it can be that we hold, we, we're constantly trying to bubble wrap players, isn't it, and hold them back. Whereas if you turn around and say to them that this is an opportunity to push these players hard, that's going to be a real positive, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think the age-old argument is medical teams are trying to say do less Sports science and SNC coaches are trying to say do more, and that might be true occasionally, but not every time. I think uh, that's a terrible myth to get dragged into. I think lots of good physios completely appreciate that to protect someone, you've got to train hard, and so it's not it's not a do less mentality. Yeah, definitely. I think that I think that's really. Um really fascinating in terms of how it's progressed, but also the, the, that buy-in from players because that's really, really important, isn't it? If, you, if you're not getting that. And I think the other good thing to take, for coaches to take away is that it didn't initially, like you just said, it was, I think you said, 50 percent 60% compliance initially. A lot of coaches would probably look at a team like Arsenal, a programme like theirs behind the scenes and think, oh, players just go in and, and get on with it and they just do, do what they're told. But so I think it's quite refreshing for a lot of coaches to hear that and it, and it might take a bit of a process to actually get that embedded with the players. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's tactics you can use if you can get around the senior players early on and get the buy-in from the senior players. I mean, every team's got them. They might end up dragging a couple of youngsters up or a couple of your difficult characters. They might end up dragging them into it. But 
I think I'd be a liar if I said we had 90% compliance even in the first two years. And uh, But gradually, the ones who weren't buying into it either did in the end because they saw the benefit or left the club, which was always easy. Because like I say, the incoming players saw it as normal. Didn't think they had a choice. They saw it as normal. And so that helped increase the compliance on its own. And yeah, it's still going now. This is something we set up in around 20, I think 2013, 2014. It's still going now. Okay, it's been enhanced every year. It's been adjusted every year. You make mistakes, you learn from things. I think you need to cut the data you're not using, of course. No point collecting it if you're not going to use it. But it's developed, but it's still going on now. No, I think that, that's a really fascinating point. And just on the, on the players from that point of view, do you think that those players coming in that, that sort of bought into it a little bit quicker, was that down to recruitment of the type of player and, the, and the, um, I suppose the personal personality of the player or was it due to how you think football is progressing <clears throat> or, or was it a little combination or nothing to do with any of that? Probably because they've just joined the club and want to be seen to be doing everything they can. They'd want to be seen as the good egg. So would go and do it. Secondly, I seriously think they considered it as normal. They saw everyone doing it and so just went up and did the testing because they thought it was something Arsenal did and never kicked up a fuss. Um, yeah, we recruited a couple of tricky ones in that time. One particular player who should remain nameless was never interested in the screening at all from the day he joined to the day he left and, you know, you have to try everything you can, try senior players, try every way you can to get them to do it. If they're not going to do it, they're not going to do it. But, yeah, on the whole, the new players coming in saw it as normal, I think. And, and you mentioned just previously, um, a couple of minutes ago, about um, disregarding any data, or not necessarily disregarding, but uh, but prioritising certain data over others, uh, things that you can use and, and help um, develop your programme. So what's your views on that? Because... The data over the years has been one thing that is just building all the time, isn't it? We're getting more and more numbers. We get we can get more and more data out of our training. Where do you see this going? Because if that's just going to keep building and building, are we just going to get more or do you see it that we can start picking out the bits that's more suitable for us? Yes, yeah, another long answer. <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, data on its own is nearly good, is it? the people interpreting the data are going to be what's going to help you, what's going to enhance your practice is going to be the people cleverer than me who are looking at that data and <clears throat> getting some solid answers from it. I think a good example of ours was we did isokinetic tests every pre-season with every player, quads, hamstrings, and realised probably three years down the line we were barely using it, if at all. Now, maybe we were wrong and maybe we could have done occasionally, but we weren't really using the data. And so made a decision not to isokinetic test the players. We had to stand by our, our principles. We're not using that data. Why are we collecting it? So that's one example of when we did cut it and that saved us a good 40 minutes every preseason per player, don't forget. Um, where's it going? Yeah, tricky. I think that's more a sports science than it is a medical question, but probably largely around GPS, isn't it? and the data that's coming in from that, which is already now live data, pitch side during training. I know the match data is currently camera tracked, I think. 
I don't think it's actually GPS tracked at the moment, but when the match data becomes live and is good enough and scrubbed enough, I believe you call it in the science world, scrubbed enough to be valid and to be you know reliable, I think that's going to be a bit of a game changer. Live data from GPS real time on match days is going to be enormous. But you're right, as a data scientist start to get employed at clubs alongside sports scientists, you can see how important this this whole data conundrum is going to be. But from the medical side of things, it mustn't replace conversation, common sense, communication, because <clears throat> you can be the best head of performance, the best sports scientist in the world, in the world. If you're not influencing the coach to change what he's doing that particular day, be it up or down, if you can't influence the coach, the data is largely worthless, isn't it? And I always like asking people, and, uh, and you don't have to give specific examples if you don't want, but it'd be great if you could. In terms of that communication, because we talk about it a hell of a lot, we talk about building relationships, and everyone's had, everyone that's been involved in any sort of um, team or sport has had times where they're like, will just click with a player and things will just work really well. And there'll be other times that are complete opposite and you feel like you can't get anything out of them at all. So have you, have you got any examples that you could go through with that? Without, you don't necessarily need to name names, but also your approach that you took with it. So if things didn't necessarily work with a player, you didn't quite get that buy-in straight away, were, were the sort of strategies that you took? Yeah, that's a tricky question. Um, I've just dropped that one on you, haven't I? No, it's okay. It's okay. I think matching the player up to the physiotherapist was always interesting, getting to know which player would react well to which physio's input. Um, wasn't always obvious, but there, there were a certain few players who would get on well with a certain physio, and you might use that physio to get your message across. Because, you know, you four physios can't get on brilliantly with a, a squad of 28 players, every single one of them. There's going to be hiccups here and there. And so getting your message across via someone else was always one tactic um, that worked quite well. Try not to get the manager involved if you can. I wouldn't always go running to the manager. I'm not sure that goes down well with the player when he sees that you've gone running to head teacher straight away. So I'd try and avoid that in the past um, there was one particular difficult player who used to call me the police all the time. Literally, I must have been running around after him all the time and he called me the police. His English wasn't great. So whenever I was texting him on the morning of screening or texting him on match day about things he needed to do, I would always start the uh, the message with an emoji of a policeman. <laughs> and I think that that mild rubbish sense of humor emoji may have just softened him a little bit at times because we communicated via various emojis involving police in the end but it worked I think and uh, I'd tie that in really with um because into the game and it's coming into into physio or, or maybe it's been going with physiotherapists longer but the big sort of sway with players now is is having their own S&C coach their own physio that <laughs> they see privately. And obviously this is, this is something that um, I personally think has come into the game a little bit more over the, uh, over the last few years. I don't know what you think about that, but that sort of ties in with that previous question in terms of matching personalities, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I think uh, 
I think it's a huge threat to, I think, sports medicine and science in, in elite sports. I think outside therapists, be they physios, be they fitness coaches, I think is a big threat. I don't see much value in it, to be honest. I think it's going to be very difficult going forward to manage those relationships. Um, Arsenal, certainly the ones we knew about, maybe I didn't know about them all, but the ones we knew about, we would try and get our arm around them uh, and maintain a level of communication so that they knew what we were doing, we knew what they were doing. It wasn't an ideal situation, but there's no point kicking off about it because if a player decides he wants to use someone occasionally, he will use them occasionally. So it's better to have it out in the open rather than be some secret cult. Um, they often got bored with it in the end. Once we knew about it, it wasn't so secret anymore and that person would be not used for too long. But yeah, if you're talking about one S&C coach at a club with 28 first-team players, how can that S&C coach possibly get on with all 28? It's going to be unlikely. So that threat of going elsewhere is always going to be there. But it's not easy. I don't see how it works. And I think a lot of it comes down to feeding egos, be that from the player or the outside therapist, in fairness. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've seen creep in a bit more. Um, and obviously this season might be a little bit different because we don't really know what's going to happen in terms of an off-season too much. But I think last off-season was a time where I certainly you saw a lot on social media, players going out and seeking external help and it probably wasn't, it's probably hitting a bit of a peak. So it needs, it needs talking about, doesn't it? Because for practitioners in clubs, they're probably going to be, well, more than likely, they're going to be coming across it at some point. I think if they're given permission for it, I think if it suits the club that it happens occasionally and they're getting a bit of extra work occasionally, no problem. I think if it's instigated by the club, great. I think if the player has a, a mature discussion with the club to say, I want to bring this person in to do some more work with me, I've got no big issue with it because in many ways it's it's a level of professionalism that you're encouraging. But yeah, there are certain people, S&C world uh, and physio world, who go around almost hawking for players with ridiculous financial um, attachments on it as well, which is uh, it's just silly. And it's not healthy. I think it uh, can only be a problem going forward unless we get a handle of it, unless we get to understand it, or it becomes very, very open. Yeah, no, definitely. Now, Cohen, I don't want to take up all your time. Uh, I know it's it's a, it's a time where it's a, a little bit strange at the moment and we're not into our normal habits, but I really appreciate... I've got all the time. I've got all the time in the world, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I do really appreciate you coming on. I think there's been some great insights there into your work at Arsenal and um, your, your experiences. But if, if people have got questions, if they want to reach out, is there anywhere that they can do that or keep an eye on the work that you guys are doing at the clinic? Yeah, um, the clinic has a Twitter feed uh, at the Lewin Clinic. Um, there's an email address as well, info at lewinclinic.co.uk. Obviously, the website's available, www lewinclinic.co.uk I think I've got them all in there um, yeah yeah more than happy to talk to people uh, via Twitter I'm better on Twitter than Instagram I'm getting there slowly but I'm better on Twitter but uh, yeah really good to speak to you awesome well yeah I really appreciate your time and coming on Colin it's been it's been great and uh, 
we'll stay in touch and hopefully when a lot of this madness is, is cleared, we'll, uh, we'll catch up about how the clinic progresses. Yeah, thanks a lot. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Cheers. See you, Ben. Thank you, as always, for listening to the podcast. It was great to have Colin on. I hope you took plenty from the episode. You can go and give Colin a follow. He's on Twitter at Lewin Physio. And he's at the clinic as well is also on Twitter. So you can go and give that a follow at the Lewin Clinic. And like always, like, like a lot of these podcasts recently, there's been so many takeaways for me. It's really hard to narrow it down to a few. But some of the standouts for me were where Cohen spoke about defining people's roles being really important. And he also touched on, um, just thinking about it now, he touched on the importance of recruitment as well, which would be another, and we said that it could be a whole different podcast um, in itself. So maybe we'll look at doing that in the future, but definitely defining people's roles, setting out what people's roles and responsibilities are, and then also understanding what other people do or, or what their roles are. Um he also said about when they first introduced some techniques in terms of screening and monitoring that they didn't throw themselves into testing. And that was something that I think he admitted that at the time he was a bit wary of, of putting something, um, adding something new into the program. They didn't throw themselves in, so they didn't get the full benefit. And I think that'll probably relate to a lot of people in your current programs. And then in terms of communication and um, relationship building, we, we spoke about matching the physio to the players. So um, the team at Arsenal and, and Colin mentioned a few of the names that he'd worked with there, matching those personalities, those physios to the players. So, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of physios in particular will be, be looking at that and thinking, I wish I had a team of physios, not just myself. But I think that ties into what we spoke about in previous episodes in that, um, where we're talking about players going working privately with practitioners um, or building relationships with practitioners. I think that's where it ties in with that. So they were my takeaways. Please, please get in touch and let us know what yours were because the last few episodes we have had people reaching out, whether it's private messaging or putting it on social media and letting us know what your takeaways were from the last few episodes. And it's always great to hear because um, when we speak to these guests, I obviously tell you what mine are, but it'd be great to hear what your takeaways were and that. I'm sure there'll be a few that are different, so it, it's great to hear. And it also gives a, a little bit of perspective on what we could potentially put into future episodes as well in terms of subjects and guests too. So please get in touch. Go and give Colin a follow. Like I said, he's on Twitter, at Lewin Physio. Big thank you to him for coming on. It was great to speak to him. And I'll speak to you later in the week with episode 86.